Well, it's good to see all of you again this morning. It seems there are several from our church family who are uh, off traveling this weekend, and we do pray for their safe return. Uh, if you haven't already, please join me in your Bibles in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, and we'll begin this morning at verse 25. This marks a transition, and uh, it is a good opportunity for us this morning to remember what Paul has been doing overall in this letter to the Galatians. Uh, so let's, let's reflect on some of the things that, we have, that have been made clear to us throughout this letter as he's built his argument. Uh, what's been happening with this group of Christians is that a large controversy arose for them at some point here in the past. Uh, and that controversy came to them as the result of the influence of a Judaizing element. What that means is that some from outside of them had come to them and begun to teach them uh, toward Mosaic law observance as an aspect of their Christian faith. Uh, this has caused a great stir. We've seen uh, lots of evidence of that in some of the things Paul has written to them. This is a people who he told us in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, were once characterized when he was living with them. They were characterized by gratitude and love as they walked simply by the pure gospel. Uh, they are now embroiled in debate and infighting, uh, and works of the flesh are beginning to predominate. So he's been doing battle on their behalf throughout this letter, and in particular it has been really theological battle. It's been doctrinal battle. Uh, by chapter 5, verse 12, he had definitively settled the matter for them. One side was wrong, and one side was right. The side that was wrong needed to repent and return to the pure gospel that they had received from Paul. But then we had what is essentially verses 13 to 24 of this chapter. We've been in this section for many weeks now. Uh, where he talks about the spirit and the flesh and the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Uh, and here's what the Galatians are finding out at this point. Uh, there was a right side and a wrong side in the disagreement, in the debate that had arisen among them. But what if both sides were involved in sin as they undertook this disagreement and this debate? What if the right side, had been prioritizing their rightness in a way that actually served their sinful flesh when they should have been focusing on, chapter 5, verse 13, serving one another in love. What if, while the wrong side was dabbling with a kind of idolatry, it's what he likens the, uh, the Judaizing return to in Galatians 4, 9, idolatry, what if while they were dabbling with idolatry, the right side was opting for fits of anger, sinful dissensions and divisions, things of that nature? You notice all of those are descriptions that are found in that list of the works of the flesh. What do you know? You can be right on a doctrinal issue and an issue that is of tremendous importance. You can be right on that issue and still manage not to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So Paul is doing a couple of things here. 
for his friends in Galatia. He is settling a theological debate and urging them to return to the pure gospel. And he's also teaching them as to how both sides of a disagreement can love the Lord through disputes in the body. Today we see Paul draw all of that together. You could think of it this way, uh, how to walk through both sides of spiritual exhortation. How to, in a spiritual way, in a godly way, give exhortation where it's needed. How to, in a godly way, receive exhortation when it's needed. We'll see Paul set this up in verses 25 and 26, the last two verses of chapter 5, and then give more specific instruction in the first five verses of chapter 6. And it's instruction that potentially applies to members of both sides of any given disagreement, as we'll see. So let's read together. We'll read a new section here starting this morning. Uh, If you're able, please stand with me as I read. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Galatians 5, 25, down to chapter 6, verse 5. Paul continues in this way. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We start with verses 25 and 26 of chapter 5. These provide for us the general exhortation that Paul's going to flesh out then in the rest of, of our passage. Look with me at verse 25. He begins in this way. If we live the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with, or follow, the Spirit. In a way, this verse is completing the thought of verse 24. You can think of those together as he's transitioning here. For those who belong to Christ Jesus, their life is lived by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Paul said at the end of chapter 2, you remember, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The the, the if here in verse 25 functions almost like a since. It's an if statement, but even in the way he's written it, he is assuming a yes, a positive answer. If we live by the Spirit, and we do, let us then follow the Spirit's leading as we walk this path. And while in reality, that looks like uh, following in the path that he's described in this last section, it looks like avoiding all of the fleshly works and pursuing all of the spiritual fruit that he's just named. That's true. But Paul puts his finger then on the Galatians' pulse by drawing very specific application in verse 26. He says there, Let us not become conceited provoking one another, 
envying one another. Whichever side of this big issue you have been on in the past, Galatians, that I have now dealt with definitively, and I trust that you see rightly and that there will be restoration and repentance and a return to the truth corporately, whichever side of this you were on, maybe you were in the right, maybe you were in the wrong and you're now having to eat some humble pie of it in this, whichever side, the danger you are in is the same. It's the danger of conceit. I have thought too highly of myself. And so, now that I've been proven right, I boast. I work to punish that other person or group by tearing them down or by destroying them with my words. In other words, I provoke them by goading them to anger and frustration. All of the desire for that stems, Paul says, from conceit. Or, I was wrong and full of conceit. And I have been proven wrong in the matter, but my conceited reply, because I have thought too much of myself, is not to stand humbly and gratefully in the truth now. No, now I resent that other person or group. I envy the fact that they were right in this and that the Apostle Paul has landed where they are and I'm the one now who needs to be humble and return to the truth. I envy that. That too, Paul says, is a response from conceit. And what follows then in the opening verses of chapter 6 are some instructions for how to walk forward after this dispute. Now in verse 1, you need to notice that neither the provoker nor the envier at the end of chapter 5, neither one of them are singled out specifically. What follows here is what all Christians are to be ready to do for all Christian brothers and sisters when we are caught in any transgression. He's giving us now truths and calling and command that go beyond the specifics of the Galatians' specific situation and extend to their whole lives as Christians and therefore to our whole life. Paul's point here is that there can be, and in their case there were, people sinning on all sides of a disagreement by how they treat one another. Let's put some names to this. See if you can follow my hands. There's two sides here. You have Bill and Frank. All right? Those are traditional Galatian names. And you have Ted in the Galatian Judaizing controversy. Bill and Frank and Ted. Bill and Frank stood against Ted as he was tempted by the Judaizers and started to make particular arguments and behaviors and practices in his faith. That was Ted. Now Ted knows he was wrong. And he's returning to the truth. He's repenting. He's returning to the pure gospel. Right? That's Ted. Bill needs to take care with how he restores Ted and how he treats him. But guess what else Bill may need to do? Bill might also need to restore Frank, who was on his side the whole time, but who was full of enmity and anger in the midst of the conflict and now perhaps continues to be. To this group of three, Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
that getting that doctrinal matter as important as it was, that getting it right, point blank, mean that you were walking in a spiritual way? No, it didn't. It did not. I hope you can tell how important this is, what Paul is doing here. Because he has spent five chapters now crafting and building a rock-solid argument and refutation of a particular doctrinal heresy. He's not suggesting that that's no big deal. He has not hidden how important these matters of truth are. He's not hidden how passionately he feels about these things. We've seen him get almost uncomfortably passionate at some points, haven't we, in this letter? He has vied for the truth with that kind of conviction. But what we've seen the entire time and what we see now is that his overarching concern and goal for his friends who he loves is not one of conquering, but of restoration. This is what he prioritizes. As harsh as he has needed to be at times, his goal has never been to rub their noses in it. His goal was to restore them to spiritual health. And that's exactly what he tells them to do here in the first five verses now of chapter 6. But he speaks to this in some pieces. And so we'll see him do three things here as he's describing this to them, what this needs to look like. Verses 1 and 2, we'll see him prescribe the remedy for this strife that he described at the end of chapter 5, the provoking and the envying and all the strife that represents. He gives them the remedy for this in verses 1 and 2. He gives them the diagnosis behind that strife, the source of strife, in verse 3. And then in verses 4 and 5, you could say he gives a qualifying comment about all of it in verses 4 and 5. He gives a warning to them about burden-bearing in verses 4 and 5. This is what we'll see with the rest of our time. First, let's start with verse 1 of chapter 6. Here we start to find the remedy for this strife. He says here, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now you remember from last week what this word gentleness entails. We described it at length. We saw there that the idea is all about a capacity for measured responses. It's a word describing a particular kind of strength, a particular kind of self-restraint. Really, the capacity to withhold harshness unless it is necessary for godliness. I can be wronged, I can be uh, attacked, and have the, the strength to absorb that in love as I'm reaching out uh, to be a help to be a servant of God. Uh, pretty important in this kind of a situation because working to restore someone who has been caught up by their flesh is bound to be a painful, trying matter. Verse 1 says of that person that they've been caught up in a transgression. That is to say, they have been overtaken from behind. In a sense, caught by surprise is even what this word suggests. It doesn't mean that what they're doing is not sin and that they're not responsible for it. It is, and they are. But it may mean that at that moment, they aren't even aware of the sin they've fallen into. They've been caught up in it. If you remember the eight-word component of, that, of the works of the flesh that we looked at that had to do with interpersonal uh, contention and strife, I said then that's really where Paul is directing the Galatians' attention, giving their situation. Uh, 
think of that list of words and how hard it can be to discern there. We all know the difficulty of discerning. In the moment, the sin of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. There's not a one on that list that what it does is it dashes into our hearts and it says, look, a sinful response. None of them do that. No, they creep in under cover of darkness and excuses. That's what they do. For many of those things, there are starting points that aren't even necessarily sinful. And how easy for, is it for you to discern when you've left that neutral starting point and gone to something else? When, when have you left simple disapproval of someone else's opinion or action and now stand in sinful enmity that is a work of the sinful flesh? When, have you, when exactly did you do that? When have you left the standing ground of righteous anger and now stand in a fit of anger? The end of that fit is very easy to see. But when exactly did you make that jump? It sneaks up on us. And when it does, God bless those spiritual-minded brothers and sisters around us with eyes to see who are willing to be that poor first person on the scene with me. Who have to take our blows and our barbs and know they don't have a bulletproof vest on. They're just armed with gentleness. They approach me Because they love me, and I love them. But as they approach me, I punch them, and I throw darts at them. And the reality of the growth from the Spirit, this presence of a thick gentleness, lets them take my punches and my darts and cover them in love and continue to come to me in an attempt to win me back. It's a uh, spirit-empowered nature. And it lets them go safely where no one else dares to go. It's a dangerous rescue mission to attempt. A gentle restoration of a brother or sister caught up in the flesh. Because it almost never starts off well. And in the two minutes that follow, your own flesh has been offended and wants to rise up and restore its good name. If you don't keep watch on yourself, you'll find yourself tempted right alongside them. Now, in terms of verse 2, I think that Tom Schreiner is right when he suggests that verse 1 is a specific illustration of the broader truth Paul gives in verse 2. Verse 2, he says this, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Our battle against the flesh is just one of the kinds of burdens that we carry. And given the way that Paul words this and describes it, it seems that that's what he's doing. He's going from his specific command to them to a reminder of the general posture of the Christian life that this, that this illustrates and describes. God calls us to be people 
who bear one another's burdens. Our burdens are many in this life, aren't they? Sin creates many burdens, as we have been describing. And then there are burdens of life in this fallen world. There are burdens of health needs, financial burdens, loneliness, mistreatment. The list goes on. And when we, who have our own burdens, choose to bear the burdens of our Christian family, what happens is that the very purpose of the church is fulfilled as the glory of God himself goes on full display. I mean, the very attributes of our Father are displayed to be seen. His own love for his people is displayed. It shines out like a city on a hill, shines out in the darkness. I say the very attributes of God because God describes himself in these same terms, doesn't he? Psalm 55, 22, we are called, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. 1 Peter 5, 7 beckons us to, quote, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we do this, when we obey the command here in verse 2, we are doing what our Heavenly Father does, what he has done for us, and what he would do for our brothers and sisters through us if we will submit to the Spirit and walk in step with the Spirit. So this is what Paul is exhorting us to here. Bear one another's burdens. And then he has to go and do what he does at the end of verse 2. He has to go and describe this in a way that's going to lead directly to the deaths of millions of trees as we wrestle with what he means by this phrase. He, he puts it in a very unique way. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hmm. There is so much to be said. I have tried hard to limit my comments to what's helpful for us this morning in understanding the passage. If this is something that interests you greatly, we can talk uh, in further detail. But let's just say a few things. Let's remember what we know already and what Paul has been emphasizing in Galatians that looks like this bearing of one another's burdens. The way he's described it thus far in the letter is with one word. What word has he been using? Love. Love fulfills the law, Galatians 5.14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds like a bearing of one another's burdens right there. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, after describing the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor, he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And not only is love the fulfillment of the law in these ways, it's also the command that Christ gave to his disciples on the night that he was arrested in John chapter 13. He said there in verse 34, just listen even to the way he describes this. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is exactly what Paul refers to here as he speaks of us loving one another enough to bear each other's burdens. And he says, in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. You are living as your Lord would have you to live. 
The only real question then is, why does he word it this way? Why does he choose to say, so fulfill the law of Christ? And that maybe is the difficult question. I think the best explanation, given, given the wider context here in Galatians, is, is that he's doing it on purpose. He's intentionally playing off of the notion of law. He uses the word law 33 times in this letter, and this is the single only time he uses it, accompanied by a descriptor, the law of Christ. The other 32 are just law, 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 and we've seen that quite a bit in our study. He's doing this intentionally. He's setting up the thing we are to fulfill as something other than the Mosaic law covenant. And he does that by calling this others-oriented law the law of Christ. To that end, T. David Gordon describes the wording here as intentionally polemical and ironic. I mean, Paul is a wordsmith, and he, he will employ irony when he uh, finds it useful. Gordon says this, he says, the phrase means something like this. The important thing now is to live as followers of Christ, following the stipulations of his covenant. If we need a namas now, a law now, it is Christ's law. And I won't have you turn here, but you may remember what we saw in 1 Corinthians 9. We've looked there a couple of times. Paul said in verses 20 and 21, three things there about himself. He said, number one, I am not under the law. Using an expression we saw then that is, that is specifically referencing uh, Mosaic covenant obligation. Time and time again in the Bible, Jews are described as the people who are under law, under the Mosaic covenant. He says of himself, I'm not under law. Number two, he says, that doesn't mean I'm without a law. I, I don't live a lawless life. I'm not outside the law of God in terms of the eternal moral law. No, number three, I am in the law of Christ. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians 9. Not under the law, but in the law of Christ, setting them apart from each other. Anyway, that's all we'll say about that. Look again at the end of verse 2. Here's the point. As we bear each other's burdens, we are faithfully doing what Christ commands. So verses 1 and 2 have prescribed the remedy for the strife he is calling them out of. All the way up in verse 26 here, what we started with. Be in step with the Spirit. So that in that Spirit-led way, you're able to move towards somebody who is caught. And you're able to do it with gentleness. And in fact, what our Lord desires is that we live in a constant willingness to bear each other's burdens. This is what we've seen thus far. The second thing we see regarding the temptation to provoke and envy one another is we see in verse 3, Paul give the diagnosis for that condition. What is it that's underneath that? That tendency that we have. He says here in verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now you might notice that's exactly what verse 26 said of itself. It said that this posture of provoking and envying was a manifestation of conceit. Let us not become conceited provoking, envying one another. But you notice that Paul connects this in verse 3 to verse 2. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He connects this warning. And that's because arrogance is the thing that keeps us from bearing one another's burdens. Arrogance keeps us from that. 
One of the things we need to see very clearly is arrogance keeps us from that in spite of what you might think or feel at the moment. It often doesn't feel arrogant when arrogance is at work keeping you from bearing one another's burdens. It was put this way. Arrogance cuts people off from the lives of others, but it is also deceitful. For those who are proud are impressed with themselves, when in actuality they are nothing. And we have to be able to say, given Paul's words here, that that's true. There is a right way for me to think of myself and to say, I'm nothing. The fact that there's a right way to say that doesn't mean that there aren't any wrong ways to say that. In other words, it's true only in the way that it is intended by Scripture. It's not true in any conceivable sense that I might possibly take it. So, for example, if I take the statement here, if anyone thinks himself something when he is nothing, if I take that in a way that leads me to disparage the giftings God's given me, or the roles that he has assigned to me, or the authority that he has entrusted to me, then I am misapplying Paul's statements here, aren't I? What would you say to a mom or a dad who has a child uh, that has some need of change in their life, maybe a need of correction, and that mom or dad says, you know, I see it, I know that they need to change that, but you know, I mean, really, who am I? Who am I? I'm nothing. What do I know? What would you say to that parent? That's not humility at all on display. It's a form of prideful rebellion against God. Because here's a man or a woman who, by virtue of being a parent, stands in a place where God has given clear commands, authority, responsibility. And yet, that person feels that their place to judge for themselves. In other words, pride struggles to accept the place that God has assigned. I know this morning that a great deal of pride masquerades as humility. In just those kinds of ways, you become aware of a need. God has put you not just into a local body, but he's put you near in relationship maybe to somebody in particular. And you become aware providentially of a need that exists there, a burden that needs help being born. Uh, and you say, well, who do I think I am? I mean, like, I could, like they could use my help. I'm sure somebody else would do a better job of helping in that. And you feel quite humble in saying those things when actually there may well be sinful, rebellious pride going on in your heart. Because that's, notice, that stance thinks itself to have the right to decide who I am, how valuable my gifts are, when in actuality God has placed me in the body with that person. He has gifted me to serve his people. And he calls me to serve. Now, let's be, let's be clear. So th there's, a, there's a, a need to paint the building right now in our own local church, right? I'm not saying that the church member with no arms should feel a great burden to come up and help paint the church building. Paul makes it very clear in many places the variety of abilities and gifts that we're given. Romans 12, verse 3. Just listen to what he says here. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But, and what is the alternative to that? I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Each one according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Listen, listen, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we are to have, he says, sober judgment to be learning how people are helped by us. How has God equipped me? How do do others find me to be of, of particular blessing? We have to have the wisdom and discernment to to move in that direction, and we have to sense the responsibility to use what God has given to serve the people around us. What's happening here in verse 3, this is the picture of one who thinks his own burdens too important to take the time to step underneath the burdens of others. Paul says of that person, he thinks himself something when he is nothing, and he deceives himself. But then in the last two verses, Paul takes that entire exhortation toward love of others, bearing of others' burdens, and he qualifies it in a very important way. We, we hear a warning here in verses 4 and 5. And I wonder if that surprises you, that he would give a command of such a valuable, important thing, bear each other's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ, that that command would come with a warning. I hope it doesn't surprise you. It shouldn't. You know, this morning, there are no, no good corrections to be made that do not come with a corresponding overcorrection. That never happens. There are pitfalls of failure and sin on both sides of any particular issue. So as he corrects them, he very pastorally gives them a a warning against an overcorrection that can happen. Here's how he puts it. Look at verse 4. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And we need to hear this warning, this qualifying statement. And in terms of how it applies to both parties, how does this apply to the helper and to the helpee? It has application to both in these scenarios. The helper, who would bear one another's, someone else's burden, the helper needs to be reminded that he is not accountable to God on the basis of how his neighbor winds up doing. He is accountable to God for how he has lived his life, how he has served the Lord, and as Paul will say shortly, how he has sown to the spirit instead of sowing to the flesh. Can you imagine someone who goes to many lengths in the lives of other people, goes to many others, with encouragement, gentleness, uh, has a sanctifying effect in the lives of others and does not get his own house in order? 
We have quite the example of that in our own times today that have rocked some pockets of the Christian world. Maybe you know who I'm thinking of. It happens. It can happen. It can happen to you. The help E, we must remember that we're helping to bear burdens in a way that increases godliness. We must help bear burdens in a way that doesn't accidentally subsidize sinful behavior. There's a danger there. The helpee will not be tested or evaluated by the Lord on the basis of what his neighbor did for him, but on the basis of how honorably and faithfully he bore his own load. I'd like you to look at this. Turn with me for just a moment. Keep your finger here, but go to 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. I'm going to read verses 6 to 15 here. 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul again here, he says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, in particular, I think those last two verses are really important for us to see. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Oh, you, you mean carry out church discipline? on that person and remove him. Is that what you mean? No, no, not at all. He says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him, admonish him as a brother. This, what he's describing is a brotherly thing to do in this instance. It's been put very eloquently, better than I could put it. Uh, let's see if, what you think about this. One man put, said this, Scripture teaches that when a person is walking in idleness, Others should step clear back and let them eat their own cooking. The message here would be simple and straightforward. Pray for this person. Teach them. Encourage them. Remind them. Pick up one end. But if they don't pick up their end, then before God, you must put your end down. Now, coming back to verses 4 and 5 of our text, this command to make it a priority to take care with our own work, has spoken to both the helper and the help e in these burden-bearing situations. It reminds us of what our, what our, what our calling is and, and what our responsibilities are. I think in particular, it reminds us of what our central priority should be. It makes clear that my priority must be that I am using my time, my gifts, 
working for others in a way that is obedient to the scriptures. I am not run by human sympathy, although that's a very useful instinct that God has given me. I'm not run even by the primary motive of meeting others' needs, although here and in many places I'm commanded to bear the load, to to meet needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ, to be this. Uh, That's true, but I'm not run by the primary motive of meeting others' needs. I'm run by the primary motive of finding the pleasure of my Lord. My motive is, it must be, that he would be pleased in how I have lived this day. Romans 14, 12 reminds us, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I must keep my affections moving to the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Now, how can I do all of this? How is any of this possible? The answer is baked into the verses here themselves. This is all possible only if, by the sight of the glory of God in Christ, by believing the gospel, I have come into possession of two things. One, I've I've come into the possession of a particular realization about myself, the depth from which I've been rescued, so that I have been truly humbled before God. And therefore, I feel a genuine sympathy for others who are caught in sin, such that I will inconvenience myself to join in their burden-bearing, verses 1 and 2. And second, I've come into the possession of a drive for the primary placement of Christ Jesus in my life, so that I will even do all of that only in the ways that are pleasing in the sight of my Father, verses 4 and 5. In other words, I trust my father's word about how best to help people and not my own sense of what is helpful. My friends, I promise you, when we stand before the throne on that last day and the books are opened and our works are put on display, I'm not talking about a judgment seat gauging pardon and salvation. I'm talking about the testing of our works. I promise you on that day we will care very much how we bore our own load in this life. We will care very much. So let's end with the questions on our mind. Where in the load that God has apportioned to me, where have I grown lax? Who are the people around me that God would use me to help bear their burden if I weren't so fixated on my own? thinking myself to be something. And in both of those scenarios, can I see that the real lack, the real thing we are crying out to the Lord for always, the real lack is a lack of gratitude and humility that only life by gospel is able to cure. May God sharpen and purify his people through his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are again thankful that you have not only rescued us from the domain of darkness, you have not only um, placed our sins upon the shoulders of your Son on the cross and clothed us with his righteousness, 
We're thankful again this morning that you have given us a down payment on our inheritance, the promised Holy Spirit, who is patiently and faithfully at work sanctifying your people. I pray, Lord, that you would use this passage that you have put before our eyes this morning to expose us to ourselves, to bring to us a sense of lament and regret over sin and sinful patterns, and a love of you that leads us to forsake those things, to repent and turn back to you. We thank you, Lord, for the the example that we have received in Christ Jesus as he lived his life full of the Spirit, never engaging in works of the flesh. And we acknowledge this morning he is far more than our example, Lord. Our very hope, our justification is based on the finished work that he has accomplished. And so we ask, even as we pursue the Spirit this morning, we ask you to help us by your Spirit to rest in him. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.